This episode is brought to you by Triggered 22 LLC, a veteran-owned apparel company. By purchasing a t-shirt, hat, or hoodie from Triggered 22, you're not only supporting a small business, but you're bringing awareness to veteran PTSD and suicide. Please help save the lives of those who fought for our freedoms. Visit Triggered22.com now and place your order. Let's help those suffering from invisible wounds. Yeah, I learned about you. I saw, uh, I always forget her name. I never met her in person. She has Radiant Skin Aesthetics. Oh, uh, Kate. Right, yeah, Kate. Kate Ginder. Yeah, yeah, so I saw you, her, she posted about it. I was like, oh, look, a podcast. I was like, I've never been on one. Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan. This is the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Matt Zeckman, owner of Cleona Coffee Roasters and part-time as an advanced EMT with Life Lion EMS. Matt, welcome to episode 42 of the American Grown Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Glad to be here. I'm glad I get you in. Like we were talking off air here, your bio, it's amazing. Here's some of the topics we're going to talk about in this episode. It has the potential to be probably one of the longest episodes because hmm. you've done so much. You're part-time with Lifeline, EMS as an advanced EMT. You're an Afghanistan war vet with 375 combat flight hours as a CH-47F door gunner. Yep. Okay, so is that like a... That's what? the uh, the helicopter. So that's the Chinook, the, the big one with the tandem rotor system that yeah. like counter uh, rotates with itself. That's the Chinook. Okay. So. You are a volunteer firefighter with Anvil Clinton Fire Department for over 10 years. Yep. Okay. And currently serve as a lieutenant, chaplain, and trustee. Yep. And if that wasn't enough for the listeners out there, you decided to start your own business, Cleona Coffee Roasters, and you did this all by the age of 25. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You're just like, yep, yep. So, you know, like I said, when I first read that in your bio, I thought maybe you'd be mid-40s or, or something like that. But again, you're younger than me. I'm going to be 32 in October, and here you are, 25, and I feel like you lived such a full life already. Yeah, it feels that way sometimes. Start from the beginning for everybody. Where did you grow up, and what was your, your home life like? Um, so I, I grew up in Cleona um, pretty much my whole life. Well, I did grow up in Cleona my whole life. Uh, the same house with uh, you know both of my parents, my two brothers. They're both older than me. Um, like I said, same house. Um, the only time I really moved out was after I, I mean, graduated high school, enlisted, joined the Army, and that was really my first time away from home for maybe more than, you know, a few weeks for like a, a camp over the summer or something. So, um, yeah, lived in Cleona my whole life. Like I said, with my two brothers, uh, my parents, I grew up, I did a lot of sports, especially when I was younger. And then high school hit, I started volunteering with the fire company, kind of fizzled out and did more of that. You went to Anvil Cleona? Yep. And we we're talking as you got here, cause I'm like, you look so familiar for the listeners that might not know, or for the new listeners here at color tech, we also have Blue Cardinal Photography, which goes around to local high schools and does sports photography, band. I mean, you name it, we, we photograph it. And I think that might have been it because you were a part of the band. Yep. So I think that was it because I'm like, this guy looks so familiar because, of course, I looked you up then on Instagram and Facebook to try to get a little bit of background. And I'm like, I 
think I photographed him or I know him somehow. So what a small world. Now, after high school, was it always the plan to go into the, the military or did you want to go to like LVC or college or what were you thinking? Um, so part of joining the fire company is what really, I think, set my future. Um, so I joined when I was 14 years old. So I was in ninth grade then. Um, really? So that kind of caught my interest. Um, originally, I think maybe when I joined the fire company when I was in ninth grade, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I realized that's a lot of school. And I was like, you know, school's not that fun anyway. But so as I grew up, I built more interest in that. And I did a ride along on an ambulance. That made me want to uh, work as an EMT. So my senior year of high school, I did a evening class at Hack in Lebanon. I got my EMT cert by the time I graduated, and I did a co-op with First Aid and Safety Patrol. So that uh, that way when I graduated, um, it was June 6th of 2016, I remember, uh, I graduated, and then a few days later I started working full-time. And at that time, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be an EMT for the rest of my life. I wanted to join the military, and I thought about it for maybe all of high school. And I just went back and forth, and was going to join the Guard and be a firefighter, and the availability in Pennsylvania for that's terribly hard. And back and forth on if I really wanted to do it. So when I graduated, didn't really plan on it. You were 14. I didn't know you could be that young to be like a volunteer at the, at the time it was possible. Now a lot of, mostly insurance companies um, kind of cracking down because when you're 14, the child labor laws really apply and firefighting is you know, sometimes kind of dangerous. Be a little deadly, yeah, a little so dangerous. It's, it's fairly restricted at 14, but you could still go on trainings, help with cleanup, go on calls. You're involved, but it's not like going to this blazing house and... Right, we're fire. not allowed to actually go inside <laughs> of a burning building until we're 18. I, so. I was just like, man, 14-year-olds, what so, is, what's going on yeah. back then? Um, and that wasn't too long ago, so I got you. Okay. That makes sense. That was your plan. EMS, firefighter, you know, serve the local community. At what point did you say, okay, I want to, I want to enlist? And and how did that go with picking what branch you wanted to go through? Um, so I knew a lot of people that were in the guard, um, and I was pretty certain I wanted to do the National Guard just because already serving my local community and knowing that um, part of the guard specifically is your primary job, although you're the U.S. Army and you go through the same training, your primary job is to serve the state, which would be natural disasters and most recent years like COVID outbreak or uh, a pandemic, you know, in many different ways you're used throughout the community. So to me, the guard just made the most sense. Um, and I really love that knowing you could also deploy overseas. So you kind of get the best of both worlds um, and how you want to serve. And my thought was, well, I was bouncing back and forth on the idea still. And I just kind of thought I saw one of those like motivational commercials on the TV. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I was like, it's a six year contract. It's one week in a month, two weeks in the summer. Um, <laughs> It's kind of not, uh, it wasn't for me anyway, but minimal involvement per se for six years. And I was like, if I don't like it, I get out after six years and, you know, honorably served. And if I love it, then I'll stay in and, you know, retire and whatever. But I don't know until I try and I don't want to get older and regret not doing it. That was kind of just, like I said, watched a commercial on TV and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I out to a recruiter, met up with him. I was pretty certain. Um, so with already being an, an EMT at the time, I was nationally registered, which means I could take that cert and take it to any state pretty much. And that's what the Army uses. The Army, even though I'm in the PA Guard, they don't require us to have our Pennsylvania cert, just our national registry. So when I enlisted, I knew that I would come in as a specialist, which is an E4, just a slightly higher rank, which typically you'd only get if you had a bachelor's degree. And although I didn't, because I enlisted as a medic specifically, I came in at a higher rank, and then I was also able to fast track through some of the training. You always knew, you know, you're going to go for the National Guard. It wasn't like Marines or you didn't you didn't go see the recruiters for like the Air Force or anything like that. No, I considered the Army Reserves for a little bit. But like I said, the whole, you know, living so close to Fort Indian Town Gap, especially yeah. being yeah. like, if I could drill there, that's kind of ideal. So right. what was the process like then when you're signing up? 
I guess at that point I would have been 19 years old because um, I remember I worked at First Aid and Safety Patrol and then kind of a year after graduating high school, I got the job at Lifeline and then a month later enlisted. But that process was pretty easy, actually, for me, just because I knew exactly what I wanted. I was like, I want to be a medic. You know, in, in that case, you don't really don't really get to pick your unit. But I knew my uh, my ASVAB score was high enough to be a medic. So I went to my recruiter. I was like, this is what I want. He didn't have to sell me on it. It's not like he had to try to work for it. It was just like, yeah. OK, yeah, let's fill out the papers. And the next thing I know, I'm going to MEPS. And- Do you think he was surprised? Like, because I don't know. Do, do they see a lot of people come in wanting to be medics? Like with your background? Did he say anything like that? I mean, probably not a lot. I mean, a lot of times they're mostly going after people in high school still where it's like, oh, at that point, too, if they're under 18, you got to get parental consent and stuff. So for him, it was probably nicer. He's like, this makes it easy. I don't have to, you know, no extra work. He knows what he wants. I just got to fill out the papers. He goes to MAPS, gets through, and less, that's all less it is. Less leg work for him. So got in with the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. You also were part-time with Lifeline. At that time, I was full-time. Oh, you are full-time. Okay, yeah. you were full-time with them. So how did you get in with them? Because that's well-known around the area. So at the time, getting a job with Lifeline was actually fairly difficult. So we have like two divisions we have. Well, we're under the same division, um, but we have like two branches. We have the flight side, which is critical care. And then we have the EMS side, which is the ground transport, which is what I do. So we work on the ambulances. Um, I did fly along in Lifeline, the helicopter before, just for, I signed up for it, was able to fly along. That was cool. Yeah. Um, And we work with them, but my job specifically was on the ambulances. But even so at the time in 2017, you had to have at least six months or a year of experience. There was quite a long list of applicants and it was a decent waiting period. Like you could wait for even six months before you heard a response back. The first time I applied, I didn't get the job, but I was a brand new EMT and I didn't really expect to. Um, then the second time I applied and then um, shortly following, I you know got an email saying they'd like to schedule an interview, went through like that. So Wow. You got a lot going on already just out of high school. So let's talk about your time over in Afghanistan from October 2019 to July 2020. What was that experience like? From the very beginning. So I enlisted as a medic and I went through the training to be a a combat medic. And I was originally assigned to uh, the 2nd 104th GSAB is what we call it, but General Support Aviation Battalion. Um, So that was my unit. So I was in an aviation unit, but that means... I'm just there for the pilots, the mechanics, their traffic controllers, the refuelers, you know, the people in that unit. So I don't know anything about aviation. And that's how I got into that deployment. Um, it was a voluntary thing that I signed up for. So at the time, my, uh, my medical readiness NCO, um, he gave me a phone call and was like, hey, Bravo Company, which is the Chinook Company. He's like, hey, Bravo Company's deploying. Uh, they need door gunners. Do you want to go with? And at the time, I'm like, uh, I was like, I don't know. I'm like, I didn't even know Chinooks had door gunners. I didn't know anything about them. Yeah. Nothing about helicopters, nothing about aviation. Um, and just being like, okay, I'm a medic. I don't do anything on my drill weekends to going from, you're going to be a door gunner. Right. It's right. pretty scary. So I actually said no at first. And then I thought about it for like a week or two and I talked to friends about it and they're like, you're stupid if you don't do it. They're like, that is not something you get asked every once in a while. And I'm glad, I'm so glad I said, you know, that I would. So Texted him back and I was like, hey, just kidding. I want to do it. So for my unit that I deployed with Bravo Company, 2nd 104th, uh, this was the first time they had a medic as a door gunner. The reason it's not a actual position stateside because they don't need them because we don't need door gunners, you know, in the country. Thank goodness we don't. So this was something that they just take volunteers. Every time there's a deployment, they find volunteers. 
Nearly all the other door gunners from Pennsylvania were aviation-related, whether they were mechanics or avionics, which is like the computer systems and helicopters. Um, so I was the only one from Pennsylvania that wasn't of an aviation background. How do the other guys perceive you because you don't have the knowledge that they do? I mean, they took on to it well because for them, and the unit was like in their, well, since 9-11 happened, I think they deployed four times since so for them they've never had a medic as a door gunner they've never that company specifically just isn't assigned a medic i was at the battalion level which is a much larger entity that's where you have the medics not at a company even though i was there as a door gunner i was a medic and so that for them was like oh this is cool yeah we have a medic with us they took on to it well i like to think i'm personable i love talking to people i make friends easy um so they took on to it well and you know as we're doing our first flights and learning uh, just fundamentals of the aircraft a lot of it was easier for them a little bit more difficult for me but to me it was so fascinating and just being able to learn from it was was awesome yeah i don't know if it's a proper term but like when you're in country when you're deployed what is a door gunner's like job what do they say okay this is like your task so the exciting part is like the term door gunner like that sounds sounds awesome badass. it yeah. does sound badass right it does and that is like one percent of the job really so like so you're not just there on the guns ready to well i am but it's a lot of preparation work and it's a lot of just being a crew member in general so my day i was on night shift when we got over there so i did all night missions so i'd get in at six o'clock i think it was like it was six to six or seven to seven but either way get there at six o'clock um, check the flight schedule if we had a mission going out you see what aircraft am i assigned to who's my crew um, you go into what we call the sensitive equipment room or the gunner's lounge okay. um, and you would sign out all the sensitive equipment which would be like the night vision goggles the m240s which is the machine guns we had um, we were all issued m9s which is the pistols so um, the weapons we would then take as like secondary weapons were m4s which is like ar-15 the military equivalent um, so we'd sign those out any of the equipment in there that sensitive because it's expensive and you know high value yeah we'd sign those out load them up on a gator drive them out to our assigned aircraft mount all of the mount all the weapons make sure all the ammo cans were filled properly make sure we got water bottles on there make sure we got rags then i'd go get people's flight gear that was kind of optional we didn't have to but us on night shift we like to do that because it helped everyone out and made them like us more <laughs> load up the gator with people's flight gear bring that out um then it would be our job to basically just help clean the aircraft make sure especially at night um we were on we we're doing night vision missions so bugs on the windshield was a big deal so if day shift was flying we get all those bugs on the windshield well night shift you're you know looking through uh nods so a bug on the windshield makes a bigger difference so a big job with for us that made the pilots love us was cleaning the windows okay so cleaning the aircraft windows every single time before a mission and then rush back because that does take quite a while rush back make the mission brief um, where we'd go over the very specific things about each mission and then sometimes we'd have a little bit of downtime, but sometimes it was, okay, we're taking off in 30 minutes, get out there. Wow. So we'd go out there, get our flight gear on, you know, put our helmets on, get in our spots. There's startup procedures that the crew chiefs and the flight engineers and the pilots would do. As a door gunner, it was kind of minimal. I just check, you know, airflow in the one heater that was down there. And uh, there's a radio cabinet behind me. Sometimes I'd have to like fill, uh, scripts onto the radios but otherwise during startup i pretty much just sat there and looked pretty and uh, <laughs> that was just to get started then right once the flight actually starts and we take off it's my job to scan the left side of the aircraft so that would be from what we consider the seven o'clock to like the 11 o'clock so it's my job to make sure we're not going to run into anything when we're taxiing on the ground i would be being like yep clear left nose clear left 
making sure we're not going to hit anything, being like another set of eyes. In the air, it's no different. Anytime we're taking a left, pilot would announce uh, clear left, and then I would say clear left, meaning you're good to turn. And the actual missions themselves, you know, of course, being overseas, we're looking for threats as well. So that is the exciting part. We're looking for enemy. We're looking for someone that's trying to engage us. So my job would be defensive to defend us. That's the exciting part. When you're up at air and you're like your cruising altitude, there's really nothing that's going to reach you from the ground. So you kind of don't have to worry as much. It's more so just airspace that you're scanning. But then once it gets time to uh, hit your, um, like the infill point where you're going to be dropping the dudes off or the cargo, wherever it is, yeah, that's when you're getting lower. You're dropping the altitude and you're just starting to scan for enemy threats. So while you're flying in, are you harnessed in? Because I picture the doors are open and you're hanging out the side, right? Like sitting on the edge. That's, that's what I picture in the movies. Sort of. So we're wearing a flight, what we call an Alsi vest, which is just like a, it's a flight vest. We have a ballistic vest on underneath. And then we have the Alsi vest, which has like survival equipment. And then we have, we're tethered in. So it's almost like a tethered leash. in. That's what I'm it's looking like for. It's like a yeah. leash. So it connects to the floor. Cause the Chinook has a, a bunch of like, tether points basically tether ourselves in um so i basically got a strap on my back it's not like a bungee or anything it's just i have enough space but if i were to like with the 240 being there i'm standing pretty much when we're doing our infill so i'm standing kind of crouched down you know scanning back and forth um but i can if i need to like if we're landing the aircraft and i need to look at the ground and count us down i could pretty much stand over top of it Mm -hmm. and sort of be like halfway out of the window but and while you're getting the helicopter ready you'd mentioned was it regs or rags? What, what what are those? So Chinook specifically, if it's not leaking, that's a problem. So there's many drains and many different oil systems and all sorts of different fluids. The things that I don't even understand is just a door gunner. There's vents and drains in the back. So we use rags a lot just to make sure okay. the aircraft is clean, to wipe things up, for cleaning windows, gotcha. different things like that. The nods for all the listeners. It's just like looking through. What could you compare that to? Binoculars? Except yeah. for night vision? Yep. Now, when would you be flying out? You say it's at night. So is that like 2 in the morning? Is it? We'd be taking off around like, let's say, 8 p.m. roughly. Sometimes later, sometimes really soon if we needed to. Um, so typically 7, 7 p.m. And then we'd be getting back. If it was a quick one, sometimes we had somewhat close missions. Um, we could be back by 11, 12 if it's quick. But typically we drop a team off. They would do an infill. We wait, whether it was back at Kandahar or at a different base, wait for them to finish, you know, doing their thing in the village we dropped them off at uh and then after the exfil by the time we get back to kandahar it could be midnight 2 p.m or uh, 2 a.m or you know we've had long missions that went all the way down to like seven or eight in the morning so let me ask you this do you know a gentleman named lou fabrizi i'm gonna say it rings a bell but i can't put a face to it i had him on the podcast he was an early episode and he national guard out at the gap he just came back from a 10-month uh, deployment. I, I was just wondering because he is I'm pretty sure a pilot, but now he's moving up in rank. So I don't know how much he goes on missions or things like that, hmm. but really good guy. And I just wondering if maybe you two kind of knew each other. It's hard. There's actually a lot of, uh, a lot of pilots. So I was mostly, I was all Chinook. So that's all the people I really knew. If there's a Chinook pilot, more likely, but we have a lot of Black Hawk pilots. There's also Lakotas, which is a different airframe. And then we have like the operational side. And then we have EATS, which is the uh, Eastern Army Aviation Training Center. So that's another area of people that I just don't wow. ever see or work with. So. so I think he was, I was a Black Hawks, I think. Yeah, I know it's a few, but not many of gotcha, them. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So were there any stories that you wanted to share um yeah i mean so there was a few times uh i just remember uh like some of the positive things of course we you know we think about oh, afghanistan the pullout that we think about which yes that was a mess 
to look back, I wish it wouldn't have went that way, and it was, uh, you know, terrible circumstances that led from it with uh, the 13, you know, warriors being killed and everything. Right. Um, that was hard for me. That was a very hard week, honestly, knowing that, you know, my friends, people, I, I did have some friends that were there. They weren't involved with that specifically, but just it could be any of us really in the military. It's people my age and younger that, you know, were affected by it. Um, but so we think about the country and we're like, oh, it's a terrible place. And there's some people that, you know, they don't really see the humanity in it. But once you're actually over there and you you fly over these villages where people are living in mud huts and they have to worry about when it snows up there, like, is the weight going to cave in their roof? And it's just seeing like Afghan contractors on the base and being able to interact with them. And, um, there was one, so I was in a, a base called camp arena. It was in Herat. So this was on like maybe halfway up the country on the Western side, maybe like 50 miles from the Iranian border. It was primarily an Italian ran base. However, we were there and there was a little coffee shop and with it being an Italian ran base, me, that coffee nerd at the time, I loved it. It was the coolest thing ever, you know. It's the closest experience I had to being in Italy. So they had, like, alcohol bars. We weren't allowed to drink. The Italians were. Yeah. Um, real, like, real good pizza restaurants. Like, I Italian it. restaurants because yeah. they were all Italian, right? Right, right. And then coffee bars, which was super cool. So, yeah, I went to the one place. It was called the Roxy Bar, and it was just an Afghan civilian. His name was uh, his name was Khaled, and I think he no was 20 way. years old. He barely spoke English, so the interactions I had with him were you know, kind of hard to understand. But, yeah. you know, I think about him often and wonder, you know, what all happened with that because I left 2020, um, and then we pulled out a year later. So I wonder how that happened. But just, uh, yeah, I remember just being over there. When you're on night vision, you can see the stars pretty clearly. You can mm -hmm. see the stars everywhere, and especially over there where there's no lights. It's so easy to see the stars already. But, yeah, I just remember some missions waiting in between the infill and exfill, just looking up at the stars, hanging out, just enjoying life for a little bit. My one friend got a, they're called mag mugs. They're, uh, they're like coffee tumblers that are made to fit in M4 mag oh, holders. Wow. So that, yeah, I'd fill that Who with coffee up with before that? we left. That's, Somebody brilliant. That's brilliant. Because yeah. <laughs> I imagine you need a lot of coffee. To stay up at night. Oh, yeah. You mentioned, you know, the pullout of, of Afghanistan. And I just want to shout out real quick. I'm a big podcast guy. And, and uh, I listened to a podcast called The Sean Ryan Show. And for all the listeners and, and Matt, for yourself, uh, it's a gentleman that's a veteran. And he interviews other vets and, and people in general. And it was episode 68. came out July 31st with Tyler Vargas Andrews. is a Marine. And he had a horrific accident at the uh, airport at the, at the one gate, I forget the name of the gate, but the explosion went off. He lost an arm and a leg just to hear his story. And I don't think a lot of people know like that there was a, a an explosive, a bomb had gone off. It just kind of puts maybe things into perspective, you know, cause you can see things on the news, but this is an actual person that was on, on the ground there and to get his in-depth story. I don't know. I just feel like everyone should listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Sean Ryan Show, um, you get on Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. So as you're deployed, what was it like then coming back? When I was overseas, it was, we went there and I pretty much, I would fly for about seven or eight days straight and have one day off. That's how busy we were. We were doing missions constantly. And then it was time was flying by incredibly fast. Uh, actually, one thing uh, to mention, three weeks in, one of our aircraft was hit by an RPG. Wait, um, that you were? I was not on it. Okay. That was my night off. Whoa. But one of our aircraft was hit by an RPG. Fortunately, they were able to keep flying. Uh, Mac, my uh, the one crew chief in the back, awesome guy. He actually buys coffee from me. Well, shout out to Mac. Yeah, shout yeah. out to Mac. But yeah, so he was actually, he got a Purple Heart. It kind of 
there the rpg went off kind of right next to him it went in through the left side of the aircraft blew up blew out a lot of the windows but they were able to do an emergency landing at a local base um and fortunately no lives were lost it was yeah yeah thank god for that that's why you know almost an incredibly lucky shot to the taliban for actually hitting us hitting and then incredibly <laughs> lucky on our end that where they hit was yeah. just to the left it would have been the fuel tanks to the right it would have been right through the like right through the cabin where everybody was if it went up it would have hit the transmission if it went down it could have went further towards the cockpit so like kind of a lucky shot in a way in a lot of different ways but so that happened and that really set the mood for our deployment of oh wow this isn't this is serious shit got there real are, then right other than that, though, none of us had to shoot back. There were, I think a lot of us had close calls, myself included, where we were probably about half a second away from just loading down on someone. But What were, I guess, like, I don't know the proper term, but rules of engagement? If they're shooting at you, do you shoot back? Or how does that work? So the unit we replaced over there, their ROE was pretty lax. Um, do you ever see the movie The Lone Survivor? Yes. So the Chinook that got shot down, that mm-hmm. was the unit we replaced on their previous deployment. So for them, that was a bigger deal. Their ROE was lax, and it was... Shoot first, ask questions later, more so than what we had. Where We were under a different division where they were under the 1st Armored Division for their deployment. We replaced them, and we were under 10th Mountain Division. So completely different set of commanders, com- completely different ROE. For us, it was a little more strict. It was you had to be like actively getting engaged or like an imminent threat's being posed to you or the aircraft or the guys around you for us to engage. So okay. um, in my case, it was somebody like about 75 meters away, right on an infill. Dudes are running out the back. Guy presents with a uh, an AK and starts like advancing towards the aircraft. So I rack it back. I get ready to unload, and our Apaches were awesome. They did an incredible job on every mission with just doing what they're supposed to do. They are offensive. I'm strictly defensive. Um, so before I knew it, they, uh, you know, they blew them took up. Them and out. They took yeah. them out, and we didn't have to worry about that. So I think a lot of us had very close calls where we were uh, – Really expecting to have to do our do our jobs, do the fun part of our jobs. Yeah. We didn't, so yeah. I'm grateful that we didn't have to and that things didn't get worse. But yeah, so that was what we did mostly. And then halfway through our deployment, about January, that's when uh, the peace treaty, the final peace treaty that led to the pullout, that's when that was signed. So they cut back our flights a lot because they didn't want us flying if we didn't have to be. At the same time then, uh, it was winter, the weather gets worse. We can't fly if we can't see, so naturally weren't flying as much. And then when COVID hit, um, as that started to fizzle into our base that's right, in yeah. A- April and May, okay. that's when we uh, we really did absolutely nothing. What was that like, you know, being overseas and, and COVID hitting, and what were the restrictions like? At first, it was like, okay, be on the lookout, COVID's a thing, but it didn't hit our base yet. Then it's, okay, one person has it on the base, three people have it on the base, and then it was, you had to wear masks everywhere, which, you know, of course, was new for all of us. Yeah. And then it was like the first person in my unit got it. Now six people got it. Then I think I have it. Then I get tested. Now I'm in isolation for two weeks. Yeah. So then we're in the what we call the NATO barracks. So those were not fun. No. No. Our our regular barracks were pretty pretty cool. That's where the Americans stayed. So everything okay. was like one ten, right? So all of our plugs worked. So all of we can plug oh, everything. Oh, I in. got you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For electricity. And then yeah. uh, the NATO barracks were two twenty because you know Europeans and stuff. So different outlets and things. If you get adapters, most phone chargers you can still plug in and you know, converts it, but still a lot different. They drop off the food trays. You don't pick what you get. If you're on the first floor, the bugs just go right in the door. Whoa. So once I was out of isolation, that was perfect. Um, I did test negative and they still made me isolate, but I'm pretty sure it was a very invalid test because they had limited supply and it took them eight minutes between the first time they swabbed me till the time they did their fourth swab with the same swab. The NCO said he wasn't doing it right and he definitely was, but beside the point, I think I actually had it, but Shortly after that, then my unit was done and sending people home. 
coming home back here to America, what was that like for you? It was uh, it was hard at first. I actually, when I was uh, in Fort Hood, we were demobilizing there, which means do all the necessary paperwork, admin stuff before you get to go home. We had to quarantine then because, you know, COVID. So I was actually looking for houses before I left Afghanistan. By the time I hit Fort Hood, we were putting offers in on houses. Uh, me and my uh, my ex-wife at the time now, or my wife at the time, ex-wife now, but uh, we were putting offers in on houses. And my parents, fortunately, being in Cleona, I was like, hey, can you go check this house out? I trust my parents' judgment 100%. So I was like, if it's good to you guys, I'm going to put an offer in. Uh, so as soon as I got home, I was like, oh, look, this is the house we got, you know, our offer was accepted on. And then five days later, we closed on a house. Oh, wow. So that was cool. So you didn't really have much time to, I mean, you, you kept moving right along. I kept moving right along. I, t- I took about a month off before I started working on the ambulance again. But in general, it was just that time goes by incredibly fast. The adjustment was different. Um, you know, I was scared, scared of the dark for a little bit. And I laugh at that because it's kind of funny. But Really? Yeah. So a lot of people think it, it's different for everybody, of course. But for me, when I got home, it's because I actually didn't feel as safe as when I was overseas. So when you think about it, you live in a, essentially a gated community where you have armed guards and barbed wire and missile defense systems and yeah. everybody, all of your friends have guns, right? So And they're all trained professionals. We're all trained. So like you don't think about it and then you get home and the only thing separating you from someone bad is your front door. Wow, so that's like, wild to think about. Even though I may not be in a combat zone anymore, there's a lot less defense in a way could not sleep without making sure I like checked all the doors, all the windows, make sure they were locked. Super sensitive when I was sleeping and that kind of fizzled out and, you know, I got more comfortable being home. That's good. Right. Yeah. You would think being home, your safe place, your home, but yet I could see how that, you know, Mm -hmm. having trained professionals, firearms, the area that you're in is so, so secure. Right. And now you're just literally the lock on your front door. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I can see that. That's wild. I would never think about that, though. You would think you're getting away from the fight, away from the war. That's that's interesting. And I wanted to shout out, I don't know if you saw the, the painting on the wall there. That was done by uh, Rebecca Gundrum. She was on episode uh, 33. She was a 20-year uh, Navy veteran, suffers from PTSD. And she had made that. We're in a, a partnership. But you never know, I guess, what demons people are fighting and what they're going through in their day-to-day life. Yeah. So now, hit on Life Lion. I'll be honest, maybe there's some of you out there, I thought it was lifeline, like I'm going to throw you a lifeline. No, it's lifeline. It's a part of Penn State Health. It includes a team of more than 400 professionals, and it offers 24-7 EMS, 911 response to numerous uh, municipalities throughout the area here. So whether you need help in an emergency or non-emergent transportation to the hospital, Penn State Health and lifeline EMS can get you there. So what was that like then coming back? I worked EMS full-time from the point I graduated high school up until about two months ago. So two months ago is when I started doing my business full-time and went part-time with the ambulance. So I was full-time and um, jumped right back into the swing of things. Like you never left. I was a third on the truck, meaning I wasn't like a primary provider just because I was like, it's been a year. I'd like to make sure I don't forget how to do my job and then be relied upon for people's lives. But it was like riding a bike. Once I, after like one day, I was like, oh yeah, I got this. I'm good. How was your adrenaline coming back and being called to the scene of an accident so different in a way than how I th- I would have thought it would be cuz when I oh like on my deployment you know one huge adrenaline rush right like we're flying we do these mission briefs they're like you guys have a high potential to be shot at like there's Taliban all in this area like it's a very bad area so when you're flying over to do these exfils or infills and you're let's say 50 60 feet over people's houses you're slowing down and you can see people walking out of their house and you have a machine gun and it's like 
don't let us get hurt. Like that's a lot of responsibility. And that is an adrenaline rush, like no other. And I have yet to find it again. So when you come home, you have to remember that, okay, things are serious. So in a way I was like, oh, this is nothing like, okay, it's dangerous. It's like, you know, we're, we're dealing with people's lives here. It's a different type, but at the same time I was used to much worse adrenaline rushes. So when I got home, I was like, I wanted that stuff. I was like, please get me something close to it. I love doing it. I want the things that are going to challenge my brain, make me be on my top performance. Um, I, I still am like that way. It's just definitely slowed yeah. down more. Would you say you're like an adrenaline junkie maybe a little bit? In some way. Not to the point where there's like, you know, people tight roping in between skyscrapers. I would never do that. <laughs> right, but right. <laughs> yeah. So when you came back home and got called to a scene of accident, obviously it's still a big deal, but it's not on that level of heightened, you know, sensitivity, heightened awareness that you were when you were deployed. Yeah. And in, in some way, even on scenes now, you know, we still have to be, you have to keep a sense of situational awareness because there's so many threats that can happen on an accident. There could be fluids down, there could be wires down, there could be uh, someone that's combatant. So many different things you still have to be on alert for. And it's one of those things that at first it's a little scary. And then it's like, you get tunnel vision and you're just so nervous. And then after a while, it's when the confidence starts to kick in and you're like, okay, I'm comfortable. I know what I'm doing. I trust myself to make decisions in these moments. So same thing when I was deployed, it was after a while. At first you're like, wow, this is terrifying. And then you're like, oh man, like I got this, but this is nerve wracking. And then after a while you're like, bring it. Like Second I am nature. ready for this. Yeah. And same thing with the fire company for over 10 years now and EMT full time for over seven years. So it was just after a while you build that, that sense of uh, preparedness and you're just like, okay, bring yeah. it. I'm ready for it. So two years ago, you started your own business, Cleona Coffee Roasters. Tell us about that. How'd that come to be? To make a long story short, it started in 2016. I could, the very beginning roots of the business started in 2016. I started working full-time uh, with First Aid Safety Patrol, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, my partner at the time, her name is Lisa, uh, she would go to Dunk, uh, Dunkin' Donuts like three times a day. Oh, wow. And that meant I also went three times a day because I was her partner. So that's kind of what got me started on coffee. And then after a while, you know, my dad broke it down. He's like, do you know how much sugar you're taking in every day and how much money you're spending? I kind of had a, you know, realization of like, oh, wow, this isn't good. So I started brewing coffee at home to save money. And I've always been someone that likes science, whether it was biology, just, you know, taking apart old electronics and, you know, the shed with my brother, whatever it may be. I loved learning how things worked. So when I started getting into coffee, I was like, okay, like slowly learning things here and there. How can I make it better? Whatever. And that's really just, that's what started this. Okay. I started it to save money and uh, I have yet to save money on this. <laughs> You've yet to save money on it. I love it. Yeah. You're getting sick of dunking coffee and, and spending the money there. I found it interesting because the original name was Golden Hour Coffee Roasters. Yep. Why'd you switch? Uh, so Golden Hour, the name in general, that's like a military medicine theme of from the point of injury, you want to get somebody to a hospital pretty much within that hour from the point of injury so i thought golden hour coffee roasters wraps in like a military medicine theme and as that was kind of growing i was like you know what i'm selling local my goal is to do something local and if i want to sell to local people the best way to do free advertising is just put the town in the name cleona coffee roasters it rings people don't have to guess where it came from it's in the name if you're from around here you're like oh wow cleona i've never seen that on somebody's logo like it's a, it's a square mile let's face it it's not not a big place so like people aren't used to seeing it so if they see that it's like oh wow i'm gonna try this this is cool and that thought that i had i'm glad i did that and made that change because it's so far been working out well you said it's unique right especially to the area and you know the golden hour i feel like that branding maybe could have got lost you know with like uh, black rifle coffee company yeah. and, and all those other 
big brands because yeah if you start local then you can grow it from there and get people on board and and really grow the name so what do you think are some of the benefits you see in owning your own small business now that you know you've been in it for about well two years yeah uh, so the first the first thing i thought would be a benefit that wasn't is you get to make your own schedule i mean yeah that's cool but you do not get well you do get to make your own schedule but like you get to pick what little free time you get to apply to it. So for me, it's like, okay, I'm doing this full time now. I get my own business. This is cool. The first week was awesome. And then I realized how much work I actually have to do. Where if it's a side business, it's like, oh yeah, I I don't need this income. I got a full time job yet. This is just Mm -hmm. for fun. And then when it's your full time job, it's like, this is your income. Go to work. So then you realize how much you need to get done, especially for advancement and stuff. It is definitely a benefit, being able to pick your own schedule. I don't have to submit paid time off. I could just be flexible, work things out. I don't need approval from anybody. I just do it. So that's definitely a benefit. The benefit of it is seeing, you know, if you work for a company, it's not like a a bad thing, but you can't really change too much how that business grows. But this way I can see something and any burst of inspiration I have, I can make it happen. I'm not relying on somebody else to make those decisions kind of also a stressful point where it's like, oh, I kind of wish somebody would just tell me what to do. What to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so so that's that's another benefit of it. Um, and, and just in general, I like being able to interact with a community. I always have. I always like being social. So that's just another aspect of being able to really face-to-face meet people, make connections, um, and I really enjoy that part of it. The harder you work, right, the more the business will or should succeed, you quickly realize how much time it does take. I think a lot of people think, oh, you have your own business or you have your family business that you're involved with. You got it easier or, you know, it's it's a lot. It's because there's no, if you only worked, let's say 40 hours a week, you're not really, it's because there's always something to do. And you go to your regular job and you work for someone else, you have 40 hours a week, you have a shift. When the work's done for you, you leave. That doesn't mean work needs to be, doesn't need to be done yet. It just means you don't have to do it. When you own your own business, it's that everlasting list of, oh, I could do this next. I could do this next. And there's the brainstorming of like, oh, well, what if I try this? What if I try this? Worrying about, well, just in general, you have to be five steps ahead. You need to be thinking about like right now I'm thinking about Christmas. What am I going to do for like limited drops for my Christmas sampler? Who am I going to partner with? Which I'm excited for Christmas. Everyone should be excited. I'm going to drop some pretty cool things. But in general, it's like, your brain's got to be turning. You get home and you can't just turn that off because that's a great way to put it. Like just because your shift ends doesn't mean there's not still work to be done, especially when you own your own business. So where does a good coffee blend start and what is the process to make a good coffee? This is also a answer I could talk about for about 12 hours at least, but um, in general for people brewing at home, the best thing to do to up your coffee game is grind fresh. Well, one source your beans, Get fresh, lo- well, it doesn't have to be local, but ideally, you know, buy from me. But fresh, you know, quality roasted beans, preferably from a specialty roaster. There are different category or categories of like accreditation you can get for being a specialty coffee association roaster. I don't have that yet. It's one of those things I just you're working on. I got so many other things to do. It's it's on the list. It'll happen. Yeah, but buy your coffee from that's freshly roasted. So ideally, if you're buying the beans. Roasted within a month, dark roasts are going to age faster. Light roasts are going to last a lot longer just because they're not as porous. They have more moisture in them. They're more dense. Um, But in general, get, you know, freshly roasted coffee and grind it yourself. I cannot stress that enough. Grinding it yourself is going to prolong that so much longer. Um, And then ultimately use good water. One thing people always forget. Wait, what? Use good water? Use good water. Because when you think about a brewed cup of coffee is 99% plus percent water um it's only the 
like what we call the dissolved solids in the coffee that you're getting in the cup that just basically changes the color and gives it some flavor. But the water is the drink pretty much. So if you're using terrible water, terrible tap water, I don't know how it is around here, but I know Anvil's is terrible. Yeah. Um, City water here. Yeah. The coffee's not going to fix it. Your coffee's not going to be that good. So if you use good water, whether you run it through a Brita filter, you get like a reverse osmosis system. Nerds like me, we distill our water and add mineral packets. Whoa. So you're going that extra step, that extra mile there. So I do, but in general, for the people at home, the best thing, get good coffee, grind it fresh because it's going to last a lot longer and then use good water. And no matter what your brew method is, that will greatly increase how good your coffee tastes. And then it's the small things here and there that I do that just, you know, okay. make a difference. But So at Cleona Coffee Roasters, when you're going out to pick your coffee beans, you know, what's the, the science behind it? How do you pick a partner to supply you? Because you're not growing you know the, the beans yourself so how do right. you how do you source that when i started you have to buy from places that do like you know home roaster stuff so you're buying in smaller quantities and mostly you're going through a third party someone that's doing that work and really talking to the farmers importing it doing all that i'm at the point now where i go through a place uh the main supplier i buy from is royal new york um and it's just a big uh, it's a coffee company they have a big warehouse in new jersey um so i go on their website i source it and they have uh, different people on there, um, different people in there that they talk to, different farmers, the coffees that they source, and then they give you like the altitude it's grown at, the varietals of the coffee. Oh, wow. Um, they try to pinpoint the specifics of the farm it came from. Um, so I look on the website. I'm not quite big enough yet to be that person flying down to farms and, you know, checking Whoa, them out myself. Yeah. That'll happen one day. I can't wait. But yeah, so that's mostly what I do. Um, and I try to make sure that the farmers, uh, the places I buy it from are mm-hmm. giving the farmers at least $1 per pound, which okay. is kind of a standard as far as like livable wages. Cause you know, the mass corporations are not, you know, it's kind of like slave labor almost, but it's awful. Yeah. So I make sure it's ethical all the way through. I'm not going to buy my coffee from somebody that isn't supporting the farmers who did all the work to, to get it to that point. And actually a little bit ago I had, uh, I had a farmer, a Colombian coffee farmer. Uh, she came over from Colombia with a whole bunch of coffee, um, which was imported, and she just drove around to different roasters to sell it. So I actually got to meet her. That was awesome. Um, so actually meeting the farmer, so I'm going to be replacing all of my Colombian coffee from her now. Oh, that's which great. Which is directly sourced from the farmer, from her family farm. And you met her. You got to and meet her. And I met her. Yeah. That was the coolest thing. Wow. So yeah. it's, it's more personal for sure because you, you know it's like a direct connection now. Yep. What are some of the benefits physically and mentally to drinking a, a cup of coffee? Well, I like to think in the morning it makes me more alert and it wakes me up a little bit. There's a lot of uh, caffeine aside. There's a lot of, you know, well, if you look back in history, caffeine specifically, once alcohol was a big thing um, and they realized that productivity and just the economy wasn't growing like it could have been. So when caffeine and coffee started to really roll in in like the 1800s and become popular, they actually noticed the positive effect it had on society in general because caffeine was making people work more where alcohol was, you know, more of a downer and it wasn't really serving uh, as as good for the public. But in general, there's different things out there, um, different coffees like the way I roast it, a lot of people tell me that my coffee does not upset their stomach. Meanwhile, coffee from, let's say, Dunkin' or Starbucks does. Just roasting it yeah. with care, getting quality beans. I mean, It, it just, makes a difference. It does make a difference. You know, with there being so many different coffee companies, what makes Cleona Coffee Roasters stand out from all those different brands? 
I guess it kind of all depends. I mean, I know I'm uh, not the only one doing exactly what I'm doing, but in this area, I try to reach out. I try to do fundraisers, donation blends. Uh, my Crazy Eights blend, 10% of the proceeds go back to my fire company. I have one called Pieces, and 10% uh, of the proceeds of that go to the Lebanon Cedars Coffee Club, which okay. is um, like their autistic support group. Um, they do a coffee uh, coffee shop type thing in the middle school. Um, so 10% of the proceeds go to that. I try to use this as a, a way to give back to my community in a way that I haven't been able to before. Um, so I love that. I love the interactions. When I roast, I'm, I could nerd out about it on here. Uh, you could definitely tell. Um, but between digital data feedback that I have, I'm looking at graphs. I'm looking at temperature curves. I'm trying to figure out how this coffee is going to interact. Every change that I need to make in the coffee, I would have had to adjust something about 15 seconds beforehand. So like really mastering the craft and just knowing based on how the coffee tastes, how it smells, what it looks like at that time, what time it is, what the temperatures are at, um, really being able to dial in coffee to a science to make sure it comes out at its peak quality. You're not mass producing coffee and just putting sugar and creamer and hey, no. here you go. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Are you looking at maybe doing a what they call it, like an iced coffee brand or something? I know it's like popular with... Way ahead of you. Yeah? Sort of, yeah. So You already think so about it? I'm actually going to be... Uh, I actually submitted the uh, food license application today. I'm going to be putting in a coffee shop. So I roast at 911 Rapid Response in Anvil. Yeah. Uh, which technically, it's Homeland Outfitters in the storefront there. But I roast... My roastery is behind the gun range. I moved in there about May, I think is when I started okay. moving stuff in. Um, but I roast there. We're going to be putting a coffee shop in the front of the store. But then from there, once that grows, yeah. my goal there, it's not going to be like any coffee shop around here. It's going to be very traditional where you're going to get, if you want good coffee, that's where you go, where my baristas are going to be well. Well, okay. I'll be one of the baristas, yeah, but, but right. be well-trained. They're going to know stuff about the coffee because they're part of a roasting company and coffee's going to be, the espresso is going to be dialed in every morning and multiple times throughout the day. You're going to care about the water temperature. You're going to care about the extraction levels. You're going to make sure the milk isn't overheated, which pretty much everywhere around here does. And that bothers me. That's a big pet peeve of mine, okay. over, over steamed milk. But anyway, so I'm going to make sure a lot of that gets done properly. And we're going to have very traditional drinks that um, and do limited drinks and um, drinks from different parts around the world, like yeah. coffee drinks, like a Mazagran, which is lemon juice with coffee in it. And well, that sounds good. That's interesting. My buddy and I uh, used to go to the firing range at 911 Rapid Response. So I'm yep. trying to picture, you said out front is where you're going to Build a coffee shop. Or so actually, if you walk in those front doors right now and you look yeah. immediately to your right, there's counters built. So that's where I'm going. Oh, wow. Yep. Oh, I haven't so, been in in a while. I mean, due to COVID, ammo and yeah. the prices, everything went through the roof. So we started picking up golf, which we're not good at that, but that's beside the point. So you're going to be in there to the right and people could come in, anybody, like you don't have to own a firearm, but you can nope. come in and get a coffee and... Nope. And it's yeah. that's how the store is currently. I mean, it is public safety oriented. They have the firearm counter and so they sell firearms and they have the, the gun range, but they have other stuff like... The owner, Mark, he has his own detailing or his own line of detailing products now called Third Alarm. So he sells that in there. But yeah, so I'm actually going to do a, There's going to be a walk up window when I open at like 530 or whatever before the store actually opens. Yeah, you'll be able to get your coffee early in the morning, walk Whoa. up to the window. Then once the store opens, I'll close the window and you can just walk inside and get it. So you thought about all this like you have this planned out. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, got to be. Like the counters are built, so I have a, have no option but to have <laughs> but a plan like, in place. To have the yeah. walk-up window because the store's not going to be open. Like, that's really, you're really thinking it through. That's phenomenal. So is this like an exclusive? 
Has any, does anybody else even know about this? I haven't been hiding it per se, but I haven't like really been Shout it advertising out. it a ton. I mean, I changed my Google address to there at Rapid Response and stuff. Okay, so, I mean, so if people do research, they might be able to figure it out. But yeah, I put it on kind of, my, put it on my Instagram story and stuff. But but this is kind of like an exclusive for sure. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. When can people walk up to the window and start getting coffee? So I'm aiming for September 30th. That's my goal. Wow, right around the corner. Yeah. Cool, and that's perfect timing, right before the fall and winter. Yep. Sweet. So if you want to get some good coffee and not that garbage at Starbucks and Dunkin', yeah. go to Kelowna Coffee Roasters. Sweet. My next question was, where do you see Kelowna Coffee Roasters in the near future? I'll still ask you that, but I think we kind of covered it. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I know your original question that I kind of uh, diverted from was the, the iced coffee thing. And eventually what I'd like to do, um, so where I'm roasting at used to be their graphics department. And their graphics department needed more space, so they moved to the front of the store. Which actually, if you haven't been in there for a while, when you walk in the front de- the front door... The fire truck counter's on the left, and there's a wall behind there because that's where the graphics department is now. So I moved where the graphics department was, and we built a wall. So my roastery's kind of secluded back there, but there's more space that I might eventually move into. And I'd like to do cold brew kegging and canning. Um, I'd like to do nitro cold brew on tap in my coffee shop, as well as in different restaurants, such as uh, Rotunda Brewing Company. And I've been talking about doing a coffee beer and possibly doing mass production of canning of cold brew. Kind of waiting to see how that goes. and So you are definitely connected, well-connected in the area, and you got a lot of things going on. How can our listeners purchase your coffee and other products? Well, so I keep the largest selection at 911 Rapid Response just because I roast there, and I can check the inventory levels. And if you walk in and I happen to be there and something's out front that you don't, uh, that isn't there, I might be able to just, you know, if I have some roasted already, put it together for you. But um, I retail at... What am I at now? About 11 different locations. Um, so between there, the Whirling Dervish Bakery in Anvil. Um, there's different places in North Anvil, Palmyra, Desserts, etc. in Hershey. Uh, TJ's Guns and Ammo in Schaeferstown. Um, so I'm working on branching that out more. Um, there's a, a coffee trailer that just started called Cool Beans Brew. Um, he's out of Cleona as well. He uses my coffee. And there's another one in Grantville that's going to be opening. Susie Q's. But if you go on my website, cleonacoffeeroasters.com, there's a where to buy tab and every Every place is on there. You can also order online. And then I do free local delivery to the Anvil Cleona School District area and 14 Town Gap. I ship it. And then I also, you can pick it up for free in Palmyra or Anvil. Throughout your career so far and, and being in the service and everything and EMS, are there any mentors that you wanted to shout out or mention? I've definitely had a, definitely had a few. I mean, shout out to my parents for sure. Without their support and just, you know, being the people that I really needed to be there for me when like every Saturday I sell uh, a market in Palmyra tomorrow I start um, I have a drill weekend with the guard and then I have annual training my unit just split AT so I have like a week here and there um, but either way I have to be at the gap for the next nine days so I won't be able to be at the market so my parents are going for me wow so shout out to my parents for the real ones they always show up I never ask them to they just they're there yeah. they're always doing what they can for me and I love them very much so shout out to them um, and I actually do have coffee blends named after them as well. Okay, well, um, what, what? My dad is the handyman. My mom is the healing hand. That's perfect. Wow. Um, but just the coffee professionals, I learned a lot from James Hoffman. He's, uh, I mean, I doubt, I doubt he's going to listen to this, but um, he owns I'll send a, it to him. Uh, you never know. He's probably on Instagram, right? Yeah. We'll find him. He's co-owner of Square Mile Roasters in London. He was a world barista champion in 2007. He has multiple books. Um, that's what really got me intrigued with coffee, um, got me into the nerdy science stuff. And I've read his books. I've, you know, watched all of his YouTube videos, learned a lot from him. 
And then Mark Soliday, also another uh, the the owner of Nine One One Rapid Response and yeah. uh, the Homeland Outfitters and the connecting uh, stores there. I'm definitely just you know seeing his business started as a little place behind his garage yeah. in the garage behind his house. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe more wow. recent than that. But seeing how his business turned from a small dream of employee number one up to I think he's in the 60s with the amount of employees he has, multiple buildings, tons of clientele. So. Just, that's phenomenal know, and him opening yeah. up his store and allowing me to move in there and him seeing the inspiration in my or him seeing the potential in my business and giving me a space to let it grow you know definitely grateful for that what would you say motivates you day in and day out to be the best version of yourself it's kind of it's kind of hard i just uh i don't want to look back and wish i would have done something different i don't want to look back and wish i would have pushed a little harder or tried a little bit more you know just also you know keeping keeping myself, you know, disciplined enough to know that, you know, I'm capable of a lot and I want to prove that to myself and uh, prove that to other people as well. What would you say your passion is? Well, definitely passionate about coffee. You know, some days it is hard because, you know, when you turn a a passion into a business, now it's about, I got to get these orders out. You know, I do still care about the roasting very much and I always will. And I always want to grow that. But to the some extent, you're always, uh, you know, sometimes when it's 1130 at night, and you have to get up at four in the morning and you're still roasting. It's a little bit different feeling. Uh, it wears on you a little bit. Yeah, when you're just doing it in your free time. Yeah, that's my passion. Uh, like I mentioned to you off uh, before we started, I, I like to do mixology um, and just learn about spirits and craft beer. That's kind of my fun hobby. So okay. I'm a little bit passionate about that, but passionate about giving back to others. And, you know, I could say that I've definitely been privileged in certain ways to have plenty of resources. And, you know, even though I did join the Army on my own will, just being able to have the backing from so many people in my unit, my parents, and just, you know, have so many supportive people behind me. I know not everybody's that fortunate. So, yeah. The items you brought with you today, tell us a a little bit about them. What do you, what do you have here? The one closest to me, this is called a trier. So this goes in my roaster. Uh, Let's see a month, two months ago, I got a brand new roaster that does about 13, well, 13 pounds to start and about 11 to 12 pounds by the time you're done. Uh, But the old roaster I was roasting on did three pounds per batch. I drove down to Alabama with my friend Michael to get that. um, And I've done over 2,000 batches on that roaster. Wow. Which is what got my business to the point it's at now. It's where I got a large roaster, which speeds up my time. And this is what's called the trier. So this goes in the coffee roaster. And as it's roasting, I can pull, I flip it up pull the samples out and I can see the bean color. I can smell them. That goes into it. So basically it's just for sampling um, coffee. And that's where looking at my screen, seeing the the temperature curves, trying to predict where the coffee's going, what does it smell like? What's it look like? And just constantly doing that to make sure that it's, you know, turning out how I want it to be. Roasting coffee is definitely very much of a science. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners, I mean, there's going to be pictures up on American Grown Podcast, but it's a a wooden handle with like a, a metal end to it that has a a pocket or a hole cut into it that the beans would then drop in. You can see, like you said, the mm-hmm. colors and, and things like that. Yeah. The second one here, just a bag of my coffee. This is my Guatemala Wei Wei Tenango. That word messes everyone up, and I don't blame you. Guatemala um, Wang Wang Tenango? Yeah, Wei Wei Tenango. Wei Wei Tenango. So this is my biggest seller. This is one of my flagship coffees that really just... Okay. I, you know, I started, everybody loved it. This is what kind of grew my business. This is the one that everybody loved that I ran out of it for a short period of time and people were not happy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I sell this. This is also one of my newer label designs that I like. Um, so it has a little veteran owned thing on there. I have the, uh, the barcodes QR code that goes to my website. Um, so just the finished product, what my business used to be. And now what I'm making at least a hundred of every single week. And it looks very professional, the packaging, the wrapping, everything mm-hmm. like it, it, it looks top notch. 
And I do this all myself. I'm very precise with the QR code being aligned properly, that the bag's folded over. There's a lot of the way that it's heat sealed, the way the label's put on in the front. Very particular, and anybody that's tried to help me package coffee knows Knows. just how particular (laughs) I am, and I'm a pain to work for. So, yeah. Gotcha. What is the the cylinder grayish brown thing? Yeah, what what is it? So this is called an AeroPress. And I brought this AeroPress specifically. So this is a brewing device. Okay. This is a very well-known brewing device. It was actually uh, invented by Alan Adler, who invented the Aerobee Flying Disc, which is the that object holds the Guinness World Record for the largest or the longest distance an object's been thrown. But he wanted to make a single brew or a single batch coffee brewer, so he invented the AeroPress. Very popular, like I said, comes apart. It's a plunger. I have the filter basket on here. A paper would filter would go on here. Okay. But as you can see, there was lettering here, and it has, like, numbers there, one, two, three, four, yeah. and then the AeroPress logo. And it's completely worn off because this is my first ever AeroPress, and this is the first coffee device I bought in 2016. So this is really what got my interest started, and this is the one I had on my deployment. So I used this well over a 1,000 times. Um, so this, this AeroPress specifically, I own maybe four or five of them now, Okay. just cause you know, why not put them everywhere? You yeah. know, you can, and they're only like $30. So reliability, they, they keep their worth. You can get replacement like plunger pieces and stuff for, but I've never needed to just, yeah, my favorite brewing device. They're versatile. You can brew with it so many different ways. So that's like the first, this is the first one. That's it me. right there. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of what got you hooked. Yeah. you say? Wow. It's like almost like an artifact here. That yeah. you gotta like put that, like frame that, put that up in your in your office. Put it in a shadow box. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Very cool. And I saw you brought some stickers as well. I did. Those are for you to keep them. Oh, thank yeah. you. Oh, cool, yeah, cool. Thank you. And I do like the logo. I like the look of it. It's clean, precise. Plus, Could you take a guess where the the shape of the logo came from? Well, that's a. Uh, the Keystone State. I mean, yep. When I switched the name to Cleona Coffee Roasters, I was trying to think of something symbolic. Like when I think of Cleona, what's an object that I could think of? And pretty much thought of nothing. But one thing I do remember about Cleona is when you drive in, and it's not just Cleona, it's other municipalities in Pennsylvania. When you drive in, there's always those signs that say, like in this case, Cleona, which, you know, sometimes they'll say like the meaning of like glory, the Greek, the Greek name of glory, whatever. I think that's actually what it is for Cleona. But the outline of those shapes, of the sign, that's what I sent to my guy to to make for the logo. I nailed it. It's perfect. It's unique. Like I said, it it definitely stands out and it fits red, white, and blue, the, the whole nine yards. It looks awesome. So now, how can our listeners connect with you and follow along on your journey? So like I said, I mean, I'm at the Palmyra Producers Only Farmers Market in Palmyra every Saturday. That goes till the end of October, so you can always see me there, unless I'm busy at the Gap, then you can see my parents there. Um, but that's every Saturday from 8 to noon. A whole bunch of different vendors there. Displaced Texan Salsa Company, uh, Sublime Mushrooms. He grows mushrooms in his is a closet at home. Um, super cool place. Recommend it. Lots of awesome vendors. Um, but also on Facebook, Instagram. I told myself I should start making reels and TikToks, and you know, you definitely should. I'm getting there, but yeah. yeah, I do have a website. I try to do blog posts when I'm when I have the free time, which is you know far and few between now. But Facebook, Instagram, kind of the easiest ways. And but, it's all Cleona Coffee Roasters. Yep, Cleona Coffee Roasters. If you search it, I'm the only one. There you go. Video, even off the cell phones, is huge, and uh, you'll definitely notice it'll start picking up traction fairly quickly. Before we close out, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? I mean, all I really want to say is that, you know, I'm uh, one, I'm glad to be on this podcast. It's a great opportunity for me. I've never been on one before. Um, But just in general, um, you know, I look back and I think about how 
growing up, we were always like, oh, I want to do this when I get older. I would, you know, I want to do this. Or it would be so cool to own a coffee shop. And it would be so cool to do this. And all I got to say is, you know, what's stopping you? You know, your dreams are your dreams are going to stay just that. They're going to be dreams unless you do something about it. So I'm glad that I said, you know, instead of dreaming about opening a coffee business, I'm just going to go do it. And, you know, it takes a lot of steps. But one day you're going to look back like I can kind of reflect on now and be like, wow, I'm glad I did that. Don't let your dreams be dreams. I think it's like a Shia LaBeouf reference. Oh, Shia LaBeouf from, is awesome. From just do it. You know, yeah. You know, that that, <laughs> right. That's what that's from, but that's gotcha. actually kind of accurate. Matt Zeckman, owner of Cleona Coffee Roasters on the American Grown Podcast and the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. To see photos of today's guests and more content, just search American Grown Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at AmericanGrownPod at gmail.com.